All right, open your Bibles to chapter 10. Actually, we didn't finish 9, did we? So we're going to pick up in chapter 9. Did we read through the whole chapter last week? You want to remember? We did. Yeah, I want to make sure we do that each week because you've got to get the, the vibe. You've got to feel the... I, yeah, let me pray and then I'm going to start talking. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for so much that it's actually hard to just put it all into words. Just, uh, Lord, we want to say that we are incredibly thankful and grateful for the life you've given us, for the uh, calling, for the privilege of living and serving, living for you and serving you in this day. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the clarity by which we now can live because of the revelation of Jesus Christ to us and your purposes in your son. We pray that today you would instill in us, Lord, a deeper love for you and um, a greater clarity even than we have of what we are to be and what we are to do and how we are to live. So we give you this time, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking this week as I was reading, studying, um, just this how amazing this vision is that John had got. I mean, if you really sit back and you look at it, you know, when you read it, it's hard to imagine receiving a vision, a series of visions like this. And then I was thinking, too, just the fact that he was able to write it down. I don't know how he did that. I mean, it had to have been supernatural, you know, to, first of all, recall it, remember it, or even to be able to write it, you know, with such incredible... Um, specificity, you know, and um, detail uh, that it's just, it's absolutely amazing. And then also to have been the one who received it, you know, to see these things. And, you know, we don't know how long it took. I mean, if we sat down and read straight through it, it probably would take, I think we did that once on a Sunday morning at Vineyard many, many years ago. I, I read straight through it one time, didn't I? Probably took me 45 minutes, an hour. I don't, I don't know what it was. <clears throat> but even just to receive it without any interruption, you know, would have taken him probably at least that long. But maybe he received it over a period of hours. Could have been even over a period. Well, it says on the Lord's Day. It's when it started. So anyway, my whole point is, is that this book is absolutely amazing in that sense. Um, both to have been the man to see, to receive it, <clears throat> And then secondly, to be able to do what he did with it and to record it so that we could see it and we could have it because we needed to have it. And, and as we enter in, into these chapters now, uh, when we get into chapter 10 especially, we're going to see how important this book is for the saints today. And again, I'm going to say that I think that um, the way that it's been traditionally and typically interpreted with what we have been looking at is not our perspective, which is that premillennial dispensationalism has so violently abused what this book is intended to do. It's hard to imagine that God would 
have even allowed it to be up in the air in my mind. And I know that there are many people today who are absolutely convinced of it as from a premillennial dispensational point of view. Um, and they're godly men and godly women and brilliant, more brilliant than me. So who am I to say that they might be wrong? But just because of the importance of what we're going to be going into now in these next few chapters, it's hard for me to imagine that God would leave it so arbitrary in terms of its understanding. But maybe it's because he wants us to dig. And maybe it's because he wants us to press in through prayer to understand and gain more understanding. So we are in the middle of the, the trumpets in chapter 9. <clears throat> and we know that the first um, four were already blown. We've looked at those. And then the last, uh, last three are actually not just trumpets, but woes as well. And so the woes are the last three trumpets that will be blown. And what we're going to actually see is that the seventh trumpet will not be blown until 1 Corinthians 15. Turn there. Verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at what? The last, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound... <clears throat> And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So that is the seventh trumpet. That's it. And that's the trumpet that will blow at the return of Christ. That's the end of all things that we'll see as we head further on into the book of Revelation. <clears throat> at that sounding of that trumpet, we're going to see there's other things that take place besides just what Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15 because that is the end of, of all things, and we've seen what that's going to look like in the, in the, in the sixth seal, and, and we'll see it more clarified as that seventh trumpet is revealed to us as we get to that in the book of Revelation. But I want to just remind us as we begin, as we look into chapter 9 and then we're going into chapter 10, that it is the providential governance of God ordaining and unleashing satanic power on the earth. It's the providential government and governance of God ordaining periods and unleashing, unleashing satanic power again and again and again and again throughout history, throughout the church's history. And this is done according to the unfolding of the divine plan of God in relation to the kingdom of Christ coming. And so Everything we're going to be reading, and I want to tell you now, beginning here, actually it's already begun with what we've been seeing 
in the seals and now the, the trumpets. But what we're going to see as we head into this period of time between here and chapter 15 is we're going to see some things that are going to be explained to us regarding the church and regarding who we are. But we want to keep in mind that as we look at that, we're seeing this incredible picture of, of, of satanic activity on the earth. In the seals, in what we've looked at with the trumpets, when we get to the bowls, it will be even more so in terms of its effect and its darkness. But in it all, God is in control. The providence of God is at work, in fact. He's not just in control. That's, that's even not enough to say. He's actually working through it. He's not just controlling it. He's working through it. He has, he has ordained it, and he has, he, has, he has allowed it. He's ordained it, and now he is using it to bring about his purposes, all things leading towards the culmination, which is the kingdom, the reign of Christ, Everything coming under subjection to Christ fully, both in heaven and on earth. And so that's where we are. We are living in this time when all of these things are happening providentially, God allowing them. I was reading again this morning, the coronavirus. They found a Orange County, somebody now in California. There's this big thing now. What is this? How are we going to control? This is not surprising, is it? It's, we find these things in, in the book of Revelation. The Lord has told us this is what's going to happen. Things like this, just one after the other, after the other, after the other. And it actually, we'll see they, they increase in, 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 in how often they take place and they increase in intensity. But God is in control. God is in control. We know from the book of Job that Satan is the slave of providence. Job is the first count in scripture where we find this truth that Satan is the slave of providence he cannot act without divine permission and from time to time he actually has to appear before the throne and give an account of himself at least according to what Job knew and I think we have to contend with everything within us and I know that I have to do this still to fight this wrong thinking that somehow Satan represents a second force in the universe that is almost equal with God and sometimes is doing whatever he wants to do and, and he's out of control and we are at his mercy as Christians. Not true ever. Never ever true. Do you believe that? You're going to have to fight that with your thinking. You do. You have to fight that. Because we've been programmed both by the world and even by bad theology to believe that somehow Satan is doing what he can, whatever he wants, because of sin, which is true to a degree. But we have to also know and understand these truths that Revelation is teaching us. Revelation is teaching us that God only gives him certain allowances to do what he does out of the providence of God's divine plan of bringing everything under subjection to Christ. And also because of God's mercy to, to sound an alarm to the unbelieving so that they'll turn to Christ. There is no second force in the universe. Only God rules. There is only one who is in control, not two who are almost co-equal. 
There is only one hand who holds the reins of power and authority in the universe. Where Christ is seated, the devil is always cast down. Where Christ is seated, the devil is always cast down. Christ is seated where? In the heavenlies. The enemy's been cast down. We'll see that in Revelation 12. Christ is seated on the throne of your heart. Right? Paul would write in Romans 8, then you are more than conquerors in Christ. See, this is the theology that is being developed here in Revelation. And we're going to have to fight this throughout our whole life when we get sick, when there's a terrible accident, someone is in our own lives is, you know, is touched by something of tragedy. You know, when there's, when there's something in the world going on and it feels like it's spinning out of control, all of these things create in us, uh, you know, fear potentially or anxiousness at least. And we, we wonder, you know, does God know? Is God know? Does God, what's he going to do? What's going to happen? Are we at the mercy of this, whatever it may be, a virus or, you know, an earthquake or a, whatever it could be? Are we at the mercy of a crazy driver on the road? Are we at the mercy? Are we at the mercy? We're at the mercy of God. We are under the hand of God. And in Revelation 7, when the, when the 144,000 were sealed, it's what Paul speaks of, it's what Peter speaks of, of being sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our future redemption. And we, and Jesus said in Matthew 28, which we're coming to in our Sunday teaching, nothing will be able to take you out of my hand. Do you believe this? This is, this is important, the providence of God, because as we go into these things now in the next few chapters, it's going to get intense. Also, one of the things we need to realize as we go into these chapters is that because of the sensationalism of dispensationalism, we tend to want to sensationalize them in our minds as well. My bent is still to look at them almost literally first, because I was raised in a, in a theology of eschatology that was a literal interpretation of these things. Somehow. And we can't do that. We have to see that they're, they're spiritual pictures of truths that will be worked out in probably many different ways on the earth in the time in which we're living. And they have already been being worked out through church history. They are not things to come. Some may yet be, but most are not. <clears throat> they are all things that have already happened. Listen, are happening and will yet happen. Yes, and that's the term recapitulation of that vision. The visions, he's seeing them from different perspectives. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls. Not all futuristic. Many of them already have happened. They are yet happening. We are living in the midst of them. I was sitting this week trying to think about, I wonder where we are in the scheme of things here. Well, we're in the middle of all of it. We're in the middle of all. We're in the middle of the seals. We're in the middle of the trumpets. And we're in the middle of the, of the bow, bowls, the woes. We're in the middle of all of it. We were, we were Get the mic real quick. You can leave it up here, Josh, and we'll just hand it out. Thanks, bud. We were talking as a family. I was, I was asking the Lord. Uh, I, I told uh, my family that I, I hope there's a, like a movie theater that I can come and sit and watch all of history and how God providentially worked everything out. Oh, yeah. And I can go, oh. And Annie always goes, you, know, you won't worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm the other I guy. I know what you like, yeah. 
Yeah. I know. I think what I think my feeling is regarding that, who knows, but is that when we get there we'll understand. That's what she said. Yeah. We'll just know. Yeah. All right, so let's jump back into Revelation 9. Let's pick up in verse 12. We already looked at the beginning of this, um, <clears throat> a picture of the fallen star coming to earth, falling to earth, given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. We know that was the fall of, of Satan to the, to the earth and beginning to work his, his, his darkness on, in the hearts of men. And then we see this release of these uh, the, the locusts, smoke coming from the pit, locusts, which is the de- demonic powers, the minions of Satan, um, demons, uh, fallen angels coming and being released by God upon the earth with satanic darkness, satanic power, and being allowed to torment men. And so we see this picture of this being taken place in these first uh, six verses. The appearance of the locust, we, we looked at that already last week. And then in verse 12, the first woe has passed, and there are still yet two to come. So now we're entering into the sixth trumpet and the second woe in verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So it says that it was a five-month period, which means that this is limited in duration and severity. This demonic outbreak of activity among the unbelieving, it carries the expression of God's wrath in the course of history now to a new level. The woes are saying that, that this this providential expression of wrath, listen, through demonic activity. Amazing statement. The providential wrath of God being allowed through demonic activity. Put that in your theological belt. Is now being uh, carried to a new intensity, being brought to a new intensity. And for John, he knew what the time he was living in under the, under the oppression of, of Rome. I mean, think about John again. I, I try to, we have to put this in his context. Um, how many of his friends had he seen killed already? Yeah. All of them. Started with the Lord Jesus himself. And then he watched one by one by one. And we don't have an account of every one of them, but we do know historically many of them. And they were martyred, killed in various ways. And Paul himself, you know, maybe 20 years before this. So John had been alive now for a number of years, knowing that the church had been persecuted under Rome's power. And so even though the, he, he knew that, what would yet happen to in, in his lifetime, there would be terror and the anxiety during the dissolution of a civilization would not ex- exhaust the torments that we're going to see 
blown now by this, this fifth trumpet. Even what Rome went through when it fell was not as bad as what things will become on the earth. And in John's mind, he would, probably couldn't imagine how it could have gotten any worse. But we're going to see things increase in intensity now. So the sixth trumpet is the second, second woe. And as the sixth trumpet is blown, a voice from the altar before God said to the angel, release the four angels at the river Euphrates. Verses 15 through 19 describe these angels. It said they had been prepared, listen, prepared for the hour, the day, and the month of the year. And they were released to kill a third of mankind. They had been prepared, in verses 15 through 19, we read this. They had been prepared for the hour, the day, and the month of the year. And they were released to kill a third of mankind. So what's the significance of the exact day being recorded that they were released? Everything is under the sovereign control of God. And I don't think it meant so much for us to think of it as a specific day in time. That's not what we're intended to think, but it's simply teaching us that even to that degree, God is in control. Are you hearing this? Of what's, yes, it's in the divine plan of God, of redemption. Every uncertainty of this world, every crazy or murderous dictator or horde through history is able to do what they do only because God is allowing it for a brief time in his eternal plan. Scripture talks about mystery. There's mystery in this. Well, the mystery is, is the depths of the mind of God. The mystery is, is when, as a human being, we try to understand things that are not meant for us to understand. And the Word of God and Paul and other New Testament writers simply say, this is a mystery. John uses that word as well. When I read that, I, I always understand it to mean that, that the mystery is something that is hidden in God and I will only know it as much as God allows me to. And where he, he draws the line with my understanding or my ability to understand is where I have to settle it in my heart. It's not for me to know more or understand more. What's for me to do there is to trust, is to trust God. But what is released, we've read, and we've read this uh, regarding they are mounted. It says, let's look at them. So in verse 15, the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month of the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They, were, they wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. So again, we're not to look at this literally. And I, I've read books when I was a young believer that were trying to describe what this might have been in describing some kind of an instrument of war, some, something that might be on the earth in the future when this re is released some, sometime into the future during the tribulation and what this might be. That's not how we're to understand this. This is symbolic 
apocalyptic terminology, language. And if you could read 20 commentaries on this, you would have 20 people probably interpret it differently. That's one of the challenges about apocalyptic literature, as I said last Sunday when I was teaching out of Matthew 24. It's almost easier if you interpret it literally, which the dispensationalists do. Because then you just go, oh, that's some kind of a crazy being, some kind of a crazy beast, or something that's going to be of an instrument of war that China or Russia are going to develop, or maybe the U.S. It's almost easier to interpret it literally than it is to allow it to be symbolic, because when it's symbolic, we're going, what could it mean? When we go back to the Old Testament for the clearest understanding of what it would mean, and at another point, we just go, it's generally, it just means this. And the general understanding of it is enough. Because it has been true, as I said a moment ago, listen, in the past, in the future, and it is now. These things have already happened. They will yet happen with greater intensity, and they are happening now. You are living through the book of Revelation. We are in the middle of it right now. We are in the middle of the seals, in the middle of the trumpets, in the middle of the bowls, somewhere in the bowls, probably, in the degree of severity of what's happening. So we can't take this literally. What is released are horses with horsemen upon them. That's what John sees. And he describes it with numbers twice times Twice 10,000 times 10,000. Anybody do the math? 200 million. 200 million is the math of that. So we cannot take this literally. It's not speaking of a literal army of 200 million. And again, the dispensationalists will talk about a coming army of 200 million Chinese. That's not what this is speaking of. This has already happened. It is already happening but it represents something symbolically that has been released upon the earth. These are the devil's horsemen, but its horses are the things that are the most frightening. It's, they have heads like lions, fire and smoke and sulfur come out of their mouths, and by their plagues they kill a third of mankind by fire, smoke, smoke, and the sulfur. Their power was in their tail, tail like serpents with heads, and by means of these tails they wounded mankind. And this is the horror of man's own inner hatred and violence as it destroys itself through wars and other atrocities. This is what's in the heart of man. That's what this is describing. This is the demonic influence on the heart of man. What man is capable of when God removes his restraining hand. So we've seen in, in, in this the, in the fifth, in the fifth, the locusts and what they looked like, and now the sixth angel and the second woe, we see this release of this demonic activity upon, upon the heart of man. And so if we are to understand this, what I, I feel like this is talking about is, 
if, if it is representing the, uh, the heart of uh, the wickedness of man and the heart of man with the demonic influence that God allows in man to take his heart in, in its rebellion where it will go, it's the millions and millions of people that man have killed through, through the history, through the ages. According to some estimates, and this is all rough, listen, between 1400 and 19, the mid-1900s, Britain engaged in 78 wars, France in 71 wars, Spain in 64, Russia in 61, Austria in 52, Germany in 23, the U.S. in 13, and Japan in 9. That's in like 300 years. That many wars among maybe seven nations I just read. World War I casualties, 37 million. World War II casualties, 71 million. 620,000 died in the Civil War alone. 2% of the population in the United States died in the Civil War. And it devastated the society. It devastated the agrarian southern economy of the southern states. And it killed so many Americans that they actually had a hard time counting how many were dead. See, what we're looking at is this picture of what John saw of that sixth trumpet and that second woe and the activity of demonic activity in the heart of, of fallen man. When man, when man is, carries his, his hatred and his, his, his rebellion to its ultimate conclusion. I read this quote regarding the Civil War. The Civil War left a culture of death, a culture of mourning beyond anything Americans had ever experienced or imagined. It left a degree of family and social devastation unprecedented by any Western society. It was so incredibly devastating. So we have all these war st statistics. How about this one? In 2018, since 1973, 60 million abortions have taken place. From 1973 to 2018, over 60 million abortions. I mean, so if you added up those numbers, which we're not trying to do literally, it's way over 200 million. So we're talking about, we're talking about the, the activity of, of satanic oppression on the heart of man. And it says in verse 20, this is what's amazing. Look at it. The rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues. But they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Isn't that descriptive of the time in which we're living? So here's the thing, is that the, the unbelieving don't understand, as, as these trumpets have been sounded, as John hears this, this trumpet sees the woe, here is the, this eagle, this eagle crying out, woe, 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 as the last three trumpets would be sounded. 
and they are sounded as warnings to, to the unbelieving to repent. They're call, it's, it's the shaking of, of mankind, both in, in, in its, its uh, infrastructure of the earth and what we know to be the earth's, what's necessary for life on the earth, and it's also that which affects the hearts of man and what we find to be in the very heart of man. None of it is, even that in and of itself is not enough to cause man to repent. They still shake their fist. I just watched this thing this week that grieved me so badly. Francis Schaeffer, one of my, one of my heroes in the faith. I read every book that he wrote, and they impacted me powerfully when I was a young believer, and I still read them. His son, Francis Schaeffer Jr., he's an atheist now. And he's doing a series of video, YouTube, casual kind of addresses where he's talking about what he sees to be wrong with Christianity and the church. The guy is like his dad, brilliant. He's brilliant. And he's articulate. And he's sitting at home in his, like his, almost like his robe, this casual scene, you know, sitting in his living room, you know, just talking off the cuff. But he has gone so far off of the faith and what his dad and his mom, godly people, put into him. His dad, being a prophetic man, writing and understanding, and he's just gone so far off the beaten path. It's like, it's like you just go, how, how can this happen? Well, we're living in a time where God is allowing these things to take place for whatever reason in his plan to work out his, his providential purposes. We're going to see more about apostasy in the coming time here in the book of Revelation. We read, we read about it last week in Matthew 24, that things will be at such a degree that the love of many will grow cold. You know, we're living in a time where you just, you see it. I mean, but here again, our tendency is we're living now in the 21st century is to think this is probably as bad as it's ever been. Let me tell you, it's not. If you just study human history and you look back on what's happened throughout history, you know that it was this bad at other times in history, if not even worse, right? Both in terms of disease and people dying of disease and, and the atrocities that man can think of to do. I mean, watch Braveheart sometime, right? And you can see what men do to men and the violence and the hatred and the wickedness. So we tend to think, oh, this is probably as bad as it's ever been. No, it's not. But here's what's happening is that, is that I think what's happening is that the heart of man is, is, is being unrestrained increasingly by God so that we're devising new ways. Man is devising new ways to shake his fist at God. And with the increase of technology and the increase of science, it's only going to be more and more so. More sophisticated demonic activity is what we're looking at. What's that? High speed, yeah. High speed, demonic, just uh, broadcasting of all of this stuff. What can we learn from this chapter before we enter into the next chapter, which we're going to do in a minute? First of all, we can rejoice in the sovereignty of God. We can rejoice in the sovereignty of God. 
The four angels who were released had been bound, this is interesting, had been bound at the great river Euphrates. This river is spoken of often in the Old Testament, but it's not, we're not to think geographically again, but what it represents. Now, the Euphrates in the Old Testament, it's, it starts, in, even today, it starts in Turkey, in the high mountains of Turkey. It runs through Turkey into Syria, cuts through almost the middle of Syria, and it runs then, then through almost the middle of Iraq, where Babylon was built on the Euphrates. Runs, Babylon was built on the Tigris. It runs through, through the uh, country of Iraq, and then it merges with the Tigris right before it pours into the Persian Gulf. And the two rivers run parallel, amazingly, through uh, Iraq, very close to each other at certain points. But the Euphrates was the key river in the Old Testament because it was the boundary that God set for the Israelites to protect them. Because of its size and because of its location, it made it difficult for other nations to get to them. Only when it was certain times of the year were they able to cross it. And the Assyrians did cross it when they came in and they sacked the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Babylonians did cross it when they came in and they sacked Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. But it represented a boundary, a, a boundary of protection to the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 1, 7 through 8 tells us that the promise was fulfilled when they entered the land with a frontier boundary, both in the natural and in the spiritual. It represented the boundary between God's kingdom and the kingdom of the prince of the world. So symbolically and prophetically, the Euphrates River is the boundary between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. So we see that it was God who set the boundary for the extent of violence in Revelation 9 that man can inflict upon man under the influence of Satan and his demonic hordes. Are you catching this? Those four angels released it, were released from the Euphrates, the boundary of the Euphrates in chapter 9. The Euphrates representing the boundary between light and darkness. Speaking again to the fact that what God is allowing man to do to man, what God is allowing man to devise, is under the providential, the sovereign uh, care and direction of God. Man can't do whatever he wants even, as wicked as man might be. Only what God allows for his purposes. So we learn that from chapter 9. We also learn that because of idolatry and sin, our world is being judged by God with spiritual torment and destruction. God, you know, I think this is one of the things that we have to combat as well, is this thought of, God, when will you judge wickedness? He is. And I don't think that way often. I always think of the future, of when I'm, I can hardly wait until the wicked are judged and the wicked are dealt with. But we need to know and see this from Revelation 
God is judging the wicked. And the things that are happening on the earth right now is a means providentially of God dealing with the wickedness of men. And he uses Satan to do it. And he uses man to do it against man. But God is in control of it. It is not running amok. It's not going whatever direction it will end up going. It's, it's God allowing it and God actually orchestrating it. And John sat there that day wherever he was on that island and he saw it unfold and he saw God's activity through history being revealed to him how God would allow these things to take place to deal with and to judge idolatry and wickedness upon the earth. And in doing it, he was also being merciful. He was sounding trumpets of warning. He was saying, repent. And see, this is something that's got to get into our hearts as believers. We have to see that our calling now is to, is to proclaim this to the unbelieving. Not to say what I'm saying today. They'll never understand this. But to say, listen, God is merciful. God is slow to anger. But don't be foolish to think that God will not and is not judging wickedness, dealing with sin. I mean, it might be a hard thing to say because, this again, this is so politically incorrect, but to say to somebody that you love that's going through something difficult, this is the hand of God dealing with you. This is God because he loves you, trying to get your attention. You have to repent. And as Christians, we can't just go, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't understand it either. Oh, I'm so sorry, yeah, this is a tough world. That's such a bad response to the truth of the word of God regarding what's really happening. So here's for me. So as a Christian now, and Hebrews 12 teaches me this, because I'm sealed by God and I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit and the name of God is written on my forehead, I am, I am his. I am not afraid of these things. But when God needs to deal with me, he, he also spanks, deals with me. So if I'm going through something, if I'm being exposed to something, if I'm sensing something going on in my life, in my body, in my family, whatever it might be, my first prayer is, God, not, why are you letting this happen? It's like, well, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? Are you teaching me how to pray? Are you teaching me how to, how to press into you more? Are you, are you dealing with an area of my heart that's unrepentant? Are you trying to get my attention regarding something? Speak to me, Father, because I know that I'm your son. I know that you love me. I know that you're with me. I know that you're for me. And I know that sometimes I need to be disciplined Teach me, teach me. Totally different response. I can pray for a brother or a sister who's going through something physically, emotionally, spiritually, and I can pray with them with faith because I know God loves them. And I can pray for healing, and I can pray for freedom, and I can pray for forgiveness. But I also pray for them Lord, teach them, speak to them through this time right now, whatever it is you want to speak. Because you are a loving father. So we learn that God is sovereign, but we also recognize in this chapter the depravity of man. 
despite this terrible carnage of war, the terrible carnage of, of murder, the terrible carnage of uh, all the things that man has devised to do to itself, men neither fear God nor man is what the picture of is here. Man is not good apart from God. They are depraved. Man is re rebellious. Men are not born neutral. I've said that the last three weeks. Man is born into sin, separated by God, and because man is born a sinner, he sins. And unless that sin is checked by the mercy of God or by a loving parent or by whatever else it needs to be checked with, restrained with, that sin will only grow and increase. So now we go into chapter 10, and let me read it. And this is, uh, this is a really interesting, interesting chapter. We'll read it, and we'll see how far we can get in the next just a few minutes. We're not going to go much longer. Short chapter, Revelation 10. We've now seen the and heard the sixth trumpet blown, the second woe. And then in verse 1 of chapter 10, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. So here's what we have. We have the six seals. We had an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal. And the interlude was a picture of silence in heaven, right? And what did that silence depict for us? The power of prayer, the importance of prayer, the importance of, of the saints' prayers. And we saw that, that picture being revealed in this, this interlude. Now we have six trumpets blown, and suddenly we have again another interlude. This is really interesting. Six seals, an interlude. Then when the seventh seal was opened, it released then the trumpets. Then the six trumpets are blown Suddenly now, before the seventh trumpet could be blown, and remember I told you in the beginning, the seventh trumpet won't be blown until 1 Corinthians 15, 52. So now we're going to be living, we're living now between the sixth trumpet and the seventh being blown. In some sense. Now, there's also, I'm going to, this might confuse you, but the seventh trumpet will be blown and the woes will then be being poured out. So, but the woes are going to be, must, they're, they're bringing a culmination to the end of the age. So we're living somewhere in this time period with, with the woes now, the trumpets being blown, the seventh trumpet not yet being sounded in fully to, 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 for the return of Christ, but, the, but we're living also now with the woes having begun. But there's going to be an interlude again between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet being blown. And this is what we're going to see. This interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet won't end until chapter 15. So from 10 to 15 is an interlude. And why does God, it's almost like, why are they, these interludes? I think sometimes maybe John just needed to catch his breath. Now, what it is, is that in the interludes, God turns his attention away from what he is doing on the earth dealing with sin in the heart of wicked man to the church. So the interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal was telling John the importance of the power of prayer. 
how God is moved by the prayers of his people. And the power of prayer and the importance of prayer in the plan of God. And now between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, another interlude, and it's almost like it's a holy huddle where we're going to come together. The church is going to see how it fits into the scheme of things now. Again, John is going to see pictures of what is happening behind the scenes and how it affects the church. It's to hear instruction, how to live as the church, our role and our destiny during this final period of human history. So we're going to go into another interlude between the sixth trumpet, the seventh trumpet, the second woe, and the third woe. So this interlude is inserted in it to dramatize the delay of the final trumpet. And it will refocus our attention on God's care for his church and the world in the midst of his providential and escalating judgments on its oppressors. Like the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet will shift again from the scene from earth to heaven. But unlike the seventh seal, which introduced silence, the seventh trumpet will be followed by a joyful shout of great voices. And this is what will be shouted. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And that's in Revelation eleven, fifteen. So John is going to see it all, but we're not necessarily yet having seen it all as we're living, but it's all happening around us nevertheless. So let's read chapter 10. Did that make sense to you? Did you follow that? The interludes are turning from what's happening on the earth to the, to, the, to the church, to see what God is speaking to the church. And so we're entering another interlude. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out the seven thunders, that's interesting, when he called out the seven thunders sounded. As though we have heard about these seven thunders before, but we haven't. The seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded, listen, by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. 
It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is an amazing chapter. We're going to look at it in depth next week. <clears throat> but it is a picture now of what, for us, this is going to be important. This is going to have a lot of meaning for us in the time in which, in which we are living. Um, but we see this incredible picture of this. Before the seventh trumpet could be sounded, the angel stops him. And he hears seven thunders. And the thunders were, must have been in accordance with the trumpets, with the, excuse me, with the, with the, the bowls. So the, the thunders and the bowls coincide. But before he could speak of the bowls, he has stopped. And he says, no, wait, wait. And so we'll talk about this next week. But it's, it's going to get into more and more for us, um, the implications of what it means to be alive in these days, how we are to live. But I just want to encourage you this week, as you're living your life, I think the, the word that it keeps coming to me, and, and we talked about this summer before last in our teaching series, how easy it is for us to be deluded. How easy it is for us to live this, this life of being deluded by arguments and by um, thinking, philosophies, attitudes, what's being broadcast through darkness, by darkness, into the world that God is allowing we have to be careful not be, to be deluded by it. We have to be careful not to let our hearts become either cold or, or, or cynical or hardened or calloused. We have to be careful not to be confused by what we see and by what we feel. We have to live with clarity. We have to see things as they really are. We have to, be, we have to see the lost. We have to see the mercy of God for the unbelieving. We have to sound a trumpet. We're going to see what this means to eat the scroll, what represented for John to eat this little scroll. It's the same scroll that was opened. It was the scroll that Jesus held in his hand that the seals were binding and, and, and opened. That's the scroll that John eats. It's the purposes of God. It's the, it's the, it's the eternal history. It's the redemptive plan of God. As John, it was revealed by, to John in the scroll, and John eats it. It's, it's, what, it's what is true in Christ on the, for mankind to know and for the church to prophesy and to speak and to make known. And when it goes into our mouth, it's sweet. It's the gospel. But when it, with the impact of it in our lives is bitter because of the cost, because of what, what it means to live it out, because of how the world will view us. And this is the world we're living in right now. So I think the thing God wants to do is he wants to raise our sight to see who we are, for us to see who we are, and to see the importance of who we are in the plan of God. Amen. So read this chapter again next, this week. Pray about it a little bit yourselves, if you want to delve into it on your own, and then we'll look at it next week. And you might want to read ahead into chapter 11, and we'll see if we can even get into that some next week. Father, thank you. We love you. Pray for this meeting today that it will be blessed by you in Jesus' name. Amen.